Hello, welcome to the National Affairs Podcast. I'm Dan Weiser. And I'm Daniel Kane. We are the assistant editors of National Affairs. National Affairs is a quarterly journal of essays on domestic policy, political economy, society, culture, and political thought. It aims to help Americans think a little more clearly about our public life, rise a little more capably to the challenge of self-government. It's published jointly by National Affairs Incorporated and the American Enterprise Institute. Today, we're very excited to be joined by former Congressman Keith Rothfuss. From 2013 to 2019, Keith represented Pennsylvania's 12th district in the U.S. House of Representatives. For our summer 2021 issue, Keith authored some reflections about his time on the Hill in a terrific essay titled, How to Fix the House of Representatives. In his piece, he argued that America's elected representatives have, quote, abdicated, delegated, or otherwise failed to defend their lawmaking authority, and have instead empowered unelected and largely unaccountable officers in the executive branch to do much of that work for them. In addition to highlighting the core features of Congress's abdication, proposed a series of substantive, procedural, and structural reforms that might help restore America's tradition of Republican self-government. Keith, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for joining us. Good to be with you guys. Thanks for getting my essay into the journal. And I noticed that mine wasn't the only one in there talking about some of these issues on congressional reform and things that plague Congress these days. So I really recommend the issue. There was a great article in there. I I think uh, Mark Strand from Congressional Research Institute and Mm -hmm. and Tim Lang were writing about a point I touched on. We we might get to it with respect to the non-delegation doctrine and what the Supreme Court's been looking at. Phil Wallach had a nice piece in there also about Congress and national cohesion. And I make the point somewhat also with respect to what our legislature is doing or not doing on that front. And really, it does reflect the people. And you have a lot of deep divisions in the country, you have deep divisions in Congress right now, but there are ways to to try to mitigate that. Unfortunately, the way we're going right now with Congress is just further entrenching the division. Sure, sure. We appreciate the recommendation. And obviously, reforming Congress is one of our favorite topics, so we appreciate you writing for us. But before we kind of get into the present-day dysfunction in Congress, I want to kind of start where you start with your piece in the historical perspective and talking about the founders' vision of Congress's role in the system. And, you know, as it says in the Constitution, all legislative powers are delegated to Congress. So we were wondering if you could just start off by talking to us about how the founders viewed Congress's role and, and why it was important to have, you know, only the legislative powers in the actual legislative branch. Well, I, I, in my essay, I kind of take it even before the Constitution. I talk a little bit about the Declaration and the notion of popular sovereignty, and that being one of the elements of the American Revolution, where, where sovereignty is going to be in the people. It's not going to be in the king. It's not going to be in a parliament. It's going to be in the people themselves, the ultimate authority for the government in deriving the authority from the consent of the governed. And as you get to the Constitution and draft of the Constitution, the founders put a bulk of that sovereignty in the Congress. It's, it's the branch that's closest to the people, the House certainly, closest to the people, the Senate, you know, we had election of senators by the state legislatures in the beginning. It was changed in the 17th Amendment to have direct election. But even in that construct, the House is still the closest branch to the people. And I, and I talk about it's where the, the concept of government of, by, and for the people is most robust. And unfortunately, you've seen this withering of Congress over the last 100 years, whether it's the progressive project or whatever, but this idea that Congress has continually ceded power to the executive branch agencies and you've had the executive branch grab power from Congress. You even had the, the Supreme Court aid and abet the stripping of power from Congress. And so Congress needs to step up, take its power back. And it's a, a lot of work to do that. And now you have Congress that does, frankly, very little lawmaking. They'll pass these massive bills 
and they'll leave it to the administration to fill in the blanks. And then when the administration, whether it's Republican or Democrat, come up with regulations, and these regulations have a significant impact on American life, on the American economy, cost a lot of money. These are costs that are being put on the American people with no vote by the American people. So again, these are some of the issues I raise in the essay. I wonder if you could trace a little bit of that history for us, because it seems like the founders went so far out of their way to try and create a, a sort of foolproof system that would maintain the sort of role of, of the legislator in creating laws. But over time, of course, as you just mentioned, it really has fallen apart. And, and you sort of trace that back to the Gilded Era and the progressive, early progressive activists. So could you tell us a little bit about what they were thinking and why they challenged the system that the founders had devised? Well, a couple things there. One is just the size and scope of government to begin with. The founders envisioned a much more limited role for the federal government, understanding that state governments are going to have pretty much much broader authority, much broader power. And this whole, the idea of the laboratories of democracy that are out there, this is supposed to be a federal system, limited powers at the federal level. But as time went on, and particularly as you got towards the progressive era, towards the end of the 19th century, beginning of the 20th century, this idea set in, oh, the, these problems are so immense, society is so complicated that, look, we need the experts to figure it out. So we'll have Congress draft broad legislation and, and delegate to the executive branch the responsibility to come up with the minutia of how we're going to govern this society. You know, fast forward to 1981, when Reagan is doing his inaugural address, and he said it right there, he said, from time to time, People have been tempted to believe that our society is so complex that it can only be managed by a group of elites, by a group of technocrats. Well, if, if we've gotten to that point, indeed, what's happened to the whole notion of, of self-government, government of, by, and for the people? And I'm reminded of, of, I think, Bill Buckley's old adage, he'd rather be governed by the first 500 names in the Boston phone directory than by the Harvard faculty. These so-called experts, they lose a lot of common sense. And certainly, we've seen that over the last year with respect to how various governments have handled the pandemic. So yes, to, to kind of transition to the part of your piece where you talk about reforms, Keith, we wanted to start with the substantive reforms you mentioned, particularly the RAINS Act, which stands for Regulations from the Executive in Need of Scrutiny. You say this would be a step in the right direction to, again, kind of give people more of a voice and start to restore some of that tradition of self-government. How would this particular act operate? And what do you think are its chances of getting passed? I think it's been proposed several times now yeah. through different Congresses, but what are your thoughts on that as well? It's not going to be passed by this Congress. The hope would that we can get back on track with, with the 2022 elections. It was passed by the Congresses in 2010, 2012, 2014, the House anyway, in 2010, 2012, mm-hmm. 2014, 2016. And the premise of the RAINS Act is, look, if one of these agencies comes up with a regulation that is going to be promulgated across the country and the cost of adapting to or implementing that regulation in the economy is going to be $100 million or more, Bring it back to Congress for an up or down vote. Let Congress approve what these agencies are doing. It will give ownership to these regulations. These have the force of law. And under, under our constitutional system, it's Congress who is supposed to make the law. And if there is a cost is going to be generated because of a law, the voters should be able to hold their representative accountable for that. Now, it might be a a great idea. It might be a good regulation that people are going to want. Well, let the people decide that. You know, that, that has to do with this whole notion of self-government. And so if there's a regulation that comes out by any number of these agencies, whether it's Health and Human Services, whether it's the Environmental Protection Agency, whether it's the Labor Department, you name it, if this regulation is going to cost more than $100 million on the American people, bring it back to the people's representatives for an up or down vote. 
let them take ownership for that. And then if the member, the senator or the member of the House makes the wrong call, they either vote for something that they that the people don't think they should have voted for, or they don't vote for something that the people would want. Guess what? You can hold them accountable. Right now, there is no way to hold that bureaucrat at the EPA accountable for passing a regulation on that's going to cost the American people a lot of money, particularly as we begin to in with these massive pieces of legislation that are going to be coming through with this Biden administration. Tremendous costs are going to be put on the American people. Out of curiosity, I'm just trying to get a sense of how this would actually operate. So if it were passed, let's say hypothetically somebody at the EPA proposes some new regulatory measure, they would calculate and they would discover that it was going to cost $200 million, whatever it would be. And at that point, Congress, they would have to go to Congress? Would it would it be in the form of, of like legislation that would be required at that point? Or it would be a it would be a, a final rule that they'd promulgate, but it would not become effective until there was an up or down vote by Congress to vote it. And I think that to address any kind of potential constitutional issue, you could have the president sign that as well. So it actually becomes a law signed by the president that would basically finish the job that the Congress began by, mm-hmm. by telling the agency, look, we think this is an issue that you need to address in the agency. Bring it back to us and we will bless the final product because we know this may have a cost on the American people. The Congress is supposed to be the branch of our government that gives us the law. But again, over this last 100, 120 years, we have delegated more and more of that responsibility to the executive branch where they just come up with these regulations which have the force of law which have never really been passed upon by the people's representatives. So that's the whole premise of the RAINS Act, to put the people back in charge of the laws that govern them. Yeah, that's actually really interesting. So in addition to the, the substantive reform that takes the shape of the RAINS Act, you also offer a series of procedural reforms. And one of the first ones you get into is, is re- reformation of the, the committee process. So I was, I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about how the committee process functions right now and what's wrong with it that lends itself to this, this problem and, and, and the kinds of reforms that might improve Congress's power. Well, one of the issues I highlight is the practice that has developed where they don't even, the leaders in the House don't even bother with the committees. They'll yeah. just have a bill come straight to the floor. It'll be a good message or whatever. And I, I talk about the situation we had back in 2018 on some immigration work. There was conversation back in the summer of 2018 about Goodlatte 1, Goodlatte 2, named after Chairman Goodlatte from the Judiciary Committee. These are a couple of bills that were put out to address the immigration issues. Yet, neither of those bills ever went through the committee. This was something that the leadership thought we had to have out there. And so rather having some iterative, deliberative work going on in the committee where you could offer a number of amendments and, and develop a product, and you could either agree with some of the things that people were saying on the other side or have the opportunity to rebut what they were saying on the other side. We never had that opportunity. So it goes right to the floor. You get an hour of debate. Everybody gets up to say their one minute. But it was not an organic piece of legislation that had the benefit of input from representatives across the country. It was pulled into the leadership offices and put together as a messaging bill. You saw the situation with the CARES Act and how that developed. The CARES Act back in March of 2020 never went through a committee. It was a select number of representatives and senators who put this together, and then it comes to the floor. Yes, it was an emergency situation, but there could have been a much better process involved to give more people buy-in. Yet you had one member have the, the audacity to suggest we should have a roll call vote on at what the, at that point was the most expensive piece of legislation in American, $2.2 trillion dollars. $2.2 
And Tom Massey yeah. from Kentucky gets up and says, you know what? Let's have a vote on this. And he was excoriated. <laughs> right. I, I, I mean, you, had, you had grocery clerks who were going to the store, you know, going to their jobs, people on the front line. Yet you couldn't have members of Congress show up and do a vote on a bill of this magnitude where the member could get up and say, I support this because, or I could say, say you know what? I understand that there's an issue here, but here are some of the problems I see with this legislation. That's what we hire our representatives to do. This is what self-government is supposed to be about. They wanted to pass that thing on a voice vote. They ended up passing it on a voice vote because Thomas Massey asked for the roll call vote, but didn't get enough people to stand and say, we want a roll call vote too. That's just not responsible. So yeah, I, I, I talk a little bit about that in this essay. But part of the problem has been leadership pulling these massive pieces of legislation and not letting it go through the committee process. We have committees for a reason. It's where you develop the record. It's where you have witnesses come in. It's where members get to propose amendments. So the typical piece of legislation, the way it should work, a member has a bill. They have an idea. They, they, they put it together. They get some help from the legislative council office in the House. It gets drafted. It's put in the right legalese the form it needs to be in it, take it to the House floor. There's a spot with the clerk. You put it in the hopper. They assign a bill number. Then it gets assigned to a committee, one of the, the many committees we have in the House of Representatives. And then it's up to the committee chairman, do I take this piece of legislation up? And that's going to depend on your relationship with the chairman. How, how many co-sponsors can you get on the bill? What's the urgency for it? And so there's this organic process that should develop. It should come into committee. You should have hearings. There'll be what we call a markup. A markup is where you take the legislation that was drafted by the council and you look at it line by line and say, oh, let's change this or, or this word isn't right. Or here's an idea. Here's an amendment. Here's a three-page amendment that I think we need to add this. You could have this debate within the committee about that. You have votes with respect to these amendments in the committee. And then it, the committee will have a final vote on the final form of this bill. And then it goes to the leadership. And does the leadership want to bring this to the floor? And then there are one of two ways it can go. It can either be such a great idea that they're going to put it through on, on what, we, what we call a suspension, where we suspend the rules of the House and we just bring it to the floor for a quick vote. The key about going under suspension is that you need a supermajority to pass that. You need two-thirds of the House to pass that. So very often when we had votes on a Monday night when we fly back in, We'll have a series of so-called suspension votes. They're there to get people back, to get them on record, to get them voting, and prepare for the, the rest of the week. So you can go the suspension route, or you can go the, the route where you go to the rules committee. The rules committee will sit there and say, okay, we're going to see what kind of amendments we're going to have on this piece of legislation, how long the debate's going to be, setting the, the rule for how to debate this piece of legislation. And there's a lot of power in that Rules Committee because, as we've seen again over the last number of years, the Rules Committee, which is controlled by the Speaker, chokes out a lot of debate, chokes off a lot of amendments, and again, disenfranchising the people and the, their representatives. So that's another one of the reforms I talked about. We need to have a much more robust and open process with respect to how this legislation is formed. But that's not happening. This piece of legislation that we have coming through right now that the Senate just passed on the so-called bipartisan infrastructure bill, there's nothing bipartisan about it because Nancy Pelosi is not going to let it be a bipartisan bill because she wants the $3.5 trillion piece to go along with it. Now, let's suppose that Nancy does bring, bring this to the floor by itself. I guarantee you, this is not going to go through any committee. This is not going to be subject to amendment. 
because this was a finely tuned product that came out of the Senate. It's a priority for President Biden. And so they'll just bring it to the floor for a vote. And where are the people's representatives going to have a say in that? It's either yes or no. It's, there's a program in this massive bill that the Senate just passed that's going to do a build out of electrical vehicle charging stations across the country. This is something that the private sector is already doing. There's one at my local gas station. You see a number of Tesla charging stations set up. That happened without a federal program. But lo and behold, we have a $5 billion plus, I think, program in there for hundreds of thousands of charging stations to be built out across the country. Where was the federal program in the 1920s when we had something called ESSO, you know, the Standard Oil Company, and all the mobile gas stations? There wasn't. The private sector did that. And when you're just swimming in red ink, I think we're up to $29 trillion right now. You know, here we come with yet another federal program. But there won't be an opportunity for a representative to go to the floor in the House and say, you know what, the, this is something that the private sector can handle, electrical vehicle charging stations. They're doing it already. I'm going to offer an amendment to strip that out. That's not going to happen the way this legislation is being done nowadays. And just to keep talking about the process there and the problems with it, Keith, you also mentioned the House calendar. And, you know, the idea that, you know, Congress is supposed to be a professional legislature, but really, you know, if you look at weekends and holidays, subtract those, the House is in session for 250 days a year. But then out of that, I think you said they're only in session for half of that or less than half of right. that. Yeah, yeah. So, so there, is it a professional legislature? It's hard to say that it is. And there are some <laughs> counterintuitive proposals in this, in this essay for, for a conservative to be making. <laughs> and look, I love the idea of getting back to the districts. I was on the plane every week. The way it's structured or was structured when I was here, it's a little bit different because of COVID and what's been happening. But the typical schedule would have members in for three and a half days a week. You fly in on a Monday, fly out on a Thursday. And one week out of every single month, you'd have a district work period. And so you're continually going back and forth and, and working your districts. And, and that was, that's all very good. But that is not the way Congress has always operated. As I understand it, that really became the standard sometime in the mid-1990s. But when you have the way legislation is being crafted today, without the kind of iterative back and forth that I think that we should be having, you are basically empowering a handful of people in Congress, a handful of senators, a handful in the House, mainly the leadership, who will put these big bills together while you're on your plane going back and forth. Rather than having extended committee meetings and extended floor debates, you're empowering the people in leadership and you're empowering the lobbying community because they're going to have more input than you are when you're back home yeah. running around your district. And so for the opportunity to have members do more collaborative work to take on some of these major issues that the country is facing, I think that you could have a different schedule that you could still get people back to the districts, but you're going to kind of shift the balance of power between that small group and leadership and the lobbying community and diffuse it back to the people's representatives. So I propose a calendar in there where you were pretty much between the opening of Congress on January 3rd and the 4th of July holiday, you're going to be there most of the time with a break at Easter time, break for Passover. You could have a, an extended break here and there. But as it is now, Congress is not getting the job done. And I, I make the point about the appropriations process. Where it's never done on time, never. I mean, I think two or three times over the last 40 years. And so you get to this big crunch in, in September with the so-called continuing resolutions, government shutdowns, et cetera. It's because it's not functioning. You would think that, that you'd want to fix it, but there 
seems to be a lack of will to want to fix it. And you end up with a poor product, I would argue. And so I do think that, particularly in the first half of the year, there has to be more legislative time put in in Washington. You could, again, put intersperse some breaks in there. People can be going home on weekends. But this idea that you're there three and a half days a week, and when you're there, you're running around all the time, and how much of that is actually being spent legislating, those are good questions to ask. And is the thought there that enforcing congressmen and congresswomen to stay in D.C. and be around one another? I guess there's two, two possibilities here. Either they aren't legislating as much as they should or making laws because they don't have the time to do it, or we're saying by forcing them to stay, we're going to force them to deal with like one another and, and, and the lawmaking process. Well, that, but understand, when I'm, when I'm suggesting also that Congress stop delegating to the executive branch, maybe they're going to have to put a little bit more time into legislating. It's one thing to draft a piece of legislation and say the secretary of such and such shall promulgate regulations consistent with this piece of legislation. No, I want you, member of Congress, to write the law that we're going to be subject to rather than delegating it to a third person that we're going to have no control over. So that requires more serious legislating, which is going to require more time. And if you're going to be having more debate, if you're going to be having more amendments, for example, I talk in the essay about the need to have amendments so that you empower the people back home who want their representatives to be working on this legislation and to, hey, I want you in there making that amendment. I want you to make the argument about how the private sector can build out electrical vehicle charging stations. We don't need to be borrowing the money from our kids and grandkids to take care of that. Let's let the private sector handle that. Make that argument for us. Well, if you're going to have a more robust amendment process, that's going to require more floor time rather than bringing people in at six o'clock on a Monday night and kicking them out at three o'clock on a Thursday afternoon when the leadership staffs can then get busy about crafting the next big piece of legislation they're going to have you vote on without your input. So it's it's not that making them stick around D.C. will solve the problem, but that if we're going to solve the problem, we're also going to have to make them stick around you, D.C. You're going to have to be doing the work you're hired to do. Yeah. Okay. And yeah, at the same time, you're going to be looking for opportunities to get some practical things done. And if you find somebody across the aisle who's going to be able to agree with you on that, well, then more power to you. Again, this ties in partly to the, such bitter divisions we have in the country. It's in the country. It's also reflected in the, in the legislature, which brings to another reform I propose also in, in, in the essay about, for the first time in 100 years, increasing the size of the House. What, you want to have more of them? <laughs> well, understand, <laughs> understand who these people are. They are your representative. Okay, and as, as the, the population of this country has grown threefold, I think, since 100 years ago, more than, I think it was 92 million about the time that we set the number at 435 members in the House. The, the individual in 1910, 1915, I think it was around 1911 that we set this, the member of Congress represented 200,000 people. Today, the, the member of Congress represents 710,000 to 725,000. That ties into any number of issues with respect to being able to get to your representative, having constituent meetings. I was meeting with people all the time, and I had a, a good-sized district. But understand what happens with that ratio of representative to the number of people you represent. Your voice becomes smaller and smaller the more you, you share that with that denominator number. So if you're one of 200,000, you're going to have a, a more 
of a voice with your representative, as opposed to being one of 720,000. So I suggest that, you know, maybe we need to take a look at increasing the size of the House. I pegged the number at 600 or 601. It might mm-hmm. appear a little bit arbitrary, but there's a little <laughs> method to my badness in there. Uh, I think there was a study done that looked at the Western democracies and, and concluded that the average constituency for a representative democracy is about 593,000 people per representative. I just mm-hmm. rounded it up. It ended up with 601 members of the House. And then I throw some tables together in there, what it would look like. Unfortunately, when I wrote the piece that the, the 2020 census numbers weren't done yet, so I used numbers from the 2020 census and showed how many representatives each state would have. Then I thought, well, this is great if we increase the size of the House, but what impact is that going to have on the Electoral College? Because as you know, the Electoral College is, is comprised of the number of representatives in a state plus the two senators. And we come up with 538 nationally. We get three for the District of Columbia. So if you increase the size of the House to 601, under my math, the, the number of in the Electoral College will go up to 704. What impact would that have on presidential elections? So I took a look at all the presidential elections going back to 1980, and one would have been different. It would have been the 2000 election with respect to George W. Bush and, and Al Gore. Under the increased numbers that I had in the, in the tables, Gore would have squeaked out an Electoral College win in that 2000 election. But that's something people should be looking at and considering. And also, I think it's harder for special interests to capture a larger number of the House. Again, you're talking about the diffusion of power. You're talking about people who might have some grand scheme that they want to get accomplished at the federal level. Well, it should be a challenge to do that. You should get significant buy-in to do that. And if you have a larger number in the House, I think you're going to have people pushing back on some of that. And you're also going to have more diversity of thought. It shouldn't just be shirts and skins the way it always seems to be right now. There's room for more nuance and more than just a binary narrative that we have out there right now. All right, Keith, as we start to wrap up here, I wanted to kind of ask you, which I think is kind of a subtext of your essay, the question of congressional will and the will of lawmakers. You've mentioned a lot of reforms, but it also comes to the point of why did Congress give up their power in the first place? And do they have the will to retake it? Do they have the will to say, you know, we don't just want leadership to control the process. We want to have individual members actually have a say and thereby give the people a say. Do you think there's the will among current members of Congress to take their power back in that way? I think you're going to have to have the help of an executive. I think you're going to have to have the help of a president who wants to make this an issue. A president in the mold of a Coolidge who who will have a little bit of humility and understand under our system of government, Congress is the one who's supposed to make the laws. And a president who is going to be willing to give up some power. It was interesting. I went I went down to see Governor DeSantis get inaugurated a couple of years ago in Tallahassee. And he made the point during his inaugural address about he saw his role as really helping the legislature do its job, understanding that we have three branches of government and it's the legislature is supposed to be drafting the laws. You know, I wrote an essay back in 2016 making the case for a vote for Donald Trump because of all the policies that we're going to be pushing and that Donald Trump would sign our legislation. But I also made the point in the essay, and it's unfortunate it never happened. I said, perhaps. President Trump would veto some of the stuff that Congress is doing. When you get these massive bills, you need a president who can hold Congress in line and say, no, 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 no. Your job is not to pass some omnibus, huge, massive 2,000-page bill that costs a trillion dollars that you never read. Go back and start over. 
you know, I remember in 87 or 88, Reagan giving this address to Congress where he walks out with this huge stack of paper and saying, Congress should never send one of these to the president. You haven't read it. The ink's barely dry. It's been out for six hours. And then you went and passed it. Yeah. You need a president who is willing to hold Congress accountable, willing to force Congress to adopt some of these reforms that would make Congress a better institution and that would help to rebalance the power among the three branches we have. A president who's willing to give up a little bit of that power, a president who would be willing to sign the Reins Act and willing to force Congress to give him the Reins Act. Because the president should want the representatives to take responsibility for the laws that they're promulgating on the American people. A good president would do that. It would require an executive who was willing to give up that power and a Congress that that wanted it back. It would require a statesman. Yeah. Yeah. Well put. Mm -hmm. So I wanted to throw out one other possible alternative, and it's something that comes up in the piece and something you mentioned actually at the beginning of this conversation, which is the resurrection of the non-delegation doctrine. And the piece you come down, not totally opposed to it, but you say it would be sort of an inadequate solution. Could you tell us a little bit about why, first of all, what the non-delegation doctrine is and why you don't think it's a good solution? Congress, frankly, should be doing its job. <laughs> That's why it's, it's, not, it's not the best solution. And, and I think this other piece that's in, in the journal this quarter also makes that, that case. You don't have to sit around and wait for the Supreme Court to kind of put some teeth <laughs> into the non-delegation doctrine and tell Congress that it's delegated too much of its authority under an intelligible principle <laughs> in the way the law is now. Generally, the Supreme Court is letting all of these delegations stand, but it's, it's looking for some principle that, that Congress is giving to the executive branch, telling it how to enact this piece of legislation. And so there's this great discussion. It's the Gundy decision where Gorsuch kind of tries to peel back some of the history of what's been going on with the non-delegation doctrine. In a sense, you don't need the court you shouldn't have to look to the court as your last resort to clip the wings of what Congress is doing. Congress should t- have some pride in its work and, and put together the law and have the executive enforce that law, as opposed to letting the executive write the law. I think it's an important doctrine that's out there. And there might be an opportunity for the court to actually put some teeth into it. But it's been a, a, a very long time since the 1920s that they, they actually did clip the wings of delegating so much authority to the executive branch. Keith, a final question for you. You've obviously, you've served in the House, you, you've been in Congress. If you were going to give some advice to an incoming lawmaker or, or a staffer who has a prominent role of how to actually view their role in the institution as an important one and, and one that can make the institution stronger, what, what advice would you give them? They have to slow things down a little bit so that they can do their job. We live in a culture now that everything is instantaneous, social media, whatever. I, I think Yaval Levin has made this point how Members of Congress have be basically become mini celebrities. You know, let's get on social media. Let's get on TV. Most of these folks you're seeing on TV, I don't know what legislation they've been, been drafting because, frankly, they're not allowed to. That's part of the problem. You've got all these ideas and all this energy bottled up, and you don't have an organic process that you're allowing to take place where you could take your idea and actually get it to the floor and have a vote on it. We've had the Hyde Amendment, a provision that restricts taxpayer dollars going to fund abortions for 43 years. Nancy Pelosi did not even allow that amendment to come to the floor. So Republicans had to try to do a motion to recommit to find a way to get it back in. 
But this is what I've been talking about, where, where if you're not allowed to even go to the floor and have a debate about something serious and substantive like that, and you're short-circuiting, you're leaving members with no outlet. So they're going to go to social media. They're going to go to the cable shows. And this is where you see this kind of celebrity status set in, as opposed to legislating. Again, we need to get back to a, a setup where legislation is actually happening. Legislators are empowered to do the job that they're hired to do. So I would encourage anybody who's getting into this right now, you know, do you want to be a celebrity or do you want to legislate? And if you want to legislate, you've got to force your leadership to come up with a way that gives people the ability to do what they think they need to do, whether it's getting on the committee that you think you need to be on. And we, we haven't talked about the committee structure, but I think that there are areas of reform that are possible there. Why is it that some committees are oversubscribed? Members want to get on these, what they construe as a very powerful committee, Ways and Means, for example. I was on financial services, the Appropriations Committee. You could take a look at the jurisdiction and a number of these committees and start to break them up, share the wealth a little bit. There's no reason why all of the a committee has to have such a broad subject area. If you have a lot of people who want to be on a committee, well, break it up so that people can get what they ran to Congress to be a part of. I think you'd have better, a better legislative product. So yeah, again, I, I would encourage people to look for ways to actually get legislation done as opposed to simply being the salesperson, the spokesperson for the national party and how it translates to your district. People get elected, they're generally idealistic, they go there with ideas, but if we're happy with having the AOC types of the world just get up there and spout whatever they want to spout, well, this is kind of where we're at with the structure we have. Well, Keith, I think you've laid out a good roadmap in your piece to start to kind of rebuild you know, the proper Congress that we should have in our constitutional system. So we appreciate you writing the essay and we appreciate you joining us on the podcast. Thanks. Good being with you guys. If you'd like to read Keith's essay or other articles in National Affairs, please visit our website at nationalaffairs.com and consider subscribing. In addition to a printed copy of National Affairs, subscribers obtain unlimited access to our online archives. And you can listen to more episodes of our podcast by subscribing on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and other podcast apps. You can also follow us on Facebook and Twitter at National Affairs. Thanks for listening.